Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, Homebrew All-Stars, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing, coming June 2019. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, indeed, man. I'm looking forward to reading it instead of writing it. And, of course, we're also both back in the episode because we're finally <laughs> both over the game pig death loop. Yeah, really. Hooray, hooray. Now, between the two of us, we have, well, I think now it's officially we have 40 years of brewing experience. Yeah, you know what, man? March 19th is going to be 21 years for me. So we definitely have uh, 40 years of home brewing experience. And I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and figuring out if it's right. And on today's episode, well, it's time for us to play catch-up, because we've been gone for just a little bit. So we're going to go head to the pub, take care of some of the beer news that has happened over the past couple of weeks. We're going to go into the brewery and talk, well, some brewing adventures, including maybe, you know, some hoppy stuff. And then finally, we're going to get into the lounge where we're going to talk a little bit of what we plan to do this brew year and talk about some of your brewing experiences. And then, of course, questions and answers, quick tip, and we're going to get the heck out of here. Boy, really? So I guess we better get started. So please sit back, take a listen to these words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with all the brewery stuff. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're back. Thanks for sticking around. And as always, we're going to start off with a few announcements. Yep. And our first announcement is, of course, don't forget that if you missed it, last week we had an episode of The Brew Files, episode 55, Triple Your Gold, where I go into a little bit of the history, then what I think the big differences are between Belgian Triple and Belgian Golden Strong Ales and how you can brew both of them. And I also get into the fact that I think the BGSP has it slightly wrong. <laughs> Ooh, I'm not going to go there. But I will say that uh, I was sorry that I was too sick to participate because, man, that's a, a fascinating subject. So maybe we can dive into it again someday. There you go. How many hairs can you split? <laughs> yeah, really. 
And we also want to remind you that you can join us, along with Marshall Schott, in Asheville, North Carolina, March 22nd and 23rd, for Brew Your Own Boot Camp. There are a lot of different classes going on there, and we're going to be teaching one with Marshall in how to do homebrew experimentation. So uh, we hope that we'll see you there. Go to byobootcamp.com to sign up and mention experimental brewing. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got not only homebrew science, but also results of homebrewing, what we think is the best way to make homebrew, and you know, really just you know some tastings galore and other things that we're going to have a lot of fun with. So totally come and join us in Asheville. It's Asheville. It's a month away. Let's go. <laughs> tastings galore. Wasn't she in a James Bond movie? James Bond. Scotch. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Right. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the HABrewSwag.com, code word experimental. And hey, they got some really cool new shirts out right now. Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on our website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which is for this part of the year, drumroll please. We have a new charity, and uh, it's one that we love. It's called Wings of Rescue, a 501c3 organization who takes pets from shelters where they're likely to be euthanized and moves them to other shelters and lets them find a home and continue their little doggy lives. Uh, you know, I, I just love things like this. They say that since we started keeping records in 2013, Wings of Rescue has flown over 31,000 pets to safety in 42 states, three Canadian provinces, as well as Puerto Rico and both the United States and British Virgin Islands. Yeah, and they're really cool. It's just private pilots who volunteer into the organization with their small planes flying to you know, places that are overcrowded and picking up dogs and taking them places where they're not crowded. Yeah, man, it's it's like so cool. It gives you chills. So please help us help them. Go to the website, click on the Patreon link, donate a couple bucks that we can pass on to them. Absolutely. And of course, since we've been gone for a while and we had a Q&A episode and some other things that we've done, it's time for your feedback. And our very first piece of feedback actually comes from me. Drew Beecham writes into the website and directly into the script that we're reading from. I'm a dummy. Oh, I'll agree with that. Yeah. In Brew Files 55, I can't believe that I got all the way through the episode talking about Belgian Strong Goldens and Triples and didn't once mention that, you know, one of the defining characteristics of those things are an amazingly rocky head. Yeah, man. And all of you out there who think that you need to, like, add uh, wheat or carapils or something like that to your beer to get beautiful beer foam... Remember, Duval has foam that most homebrewers would kill for, and it's nothing but pills, malt, and sugar. There, there is also a rumor that uh, Duval kind of cheats and uses tetrahop extract, which is incredibly foam positive. Well, that's that's true, but it's proof again that you don't need that stuff to get great beer foam. It's all down to process, uh, ingredients, and techniques. Yep. So just remember, if you're going to make a triple or a Belgian strong golden, you need a boomer of a head in order for that thing to qualify. And then our next piece of feedback comes from uh, Steve Schlitt, who says, just listen to the Back to Brewing episode the other day. Shortly afterwards, clicking around the interwebs, I came across what I thought would be another great idea to get over a slump. Find a wart share. A local brewery is selling five gallons of wart and yeast. Just sign up online and show up with a sanitized carboy and you're set. They've even organized a tasting event a month and a half later since everyone started with the same wart. It'll be cool to see what people come up with. 
Just a cool idea that I thought to always keep your fermenters full, maybe spark a little inspiration, and not spend a half a day busy brewing. Good point, Steve. Yeah. Uh, our next piece of feedback comes from Ben Pelletier, who says, Great episode, but I think you missed a few things that have helped me get out of the rut. Roasting, toasting, smoking your own malt, growing hops, and making candy syrup or invert sugar. Ben, I'm really glad that stuff helped you, but to tell you the truth, for me, those are discouraging factors, stuff that I uh, just am not interested in doing, and if I had to do them, it would keep me from brewing. But that just proves that we're homebrewers and that we're all different with different goals, and I'm really glad that you found something to help you get your groove back. I was going to say, whatever gets your brewing motor running. That's right, man. And then uh, we get a piece of feedback from John Kalinowski, who says via Twitter on the Smoke episode, Another great episode, but your guidance on peated malt is making me cringe. It's such a unique and amazing smoky flavor. I use as much as three ounces in my peated red ale without it being overpowering. Some yeast bring it out more than others, I think. Don't fear the peat. John, once again, what Denny said was, we're all obviously homebrewers. We all have different tastes. Whatever floats your boat. I'm still voting no on the peat. Yeah, John, you know what, man? You can have all of my peat malt to use in your beers because... I don't want to use it, and, uh, you know, I'll take your word for it that uh, it's not overpowering because I just can't imagine how it couldn't be, especially with three ounces in there. But again, glad that you're happy with your beer, man. That's all that really matters. Absolutely. And now, of course, we come to the All Canada Block. Somehow, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> we just had a lot of feedback from Canada. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, first one comes from Andy Covermaker, who says, On the recent podcast, episode 82, you talked about pre-made work kits. I'm Canadian, and I know you already have mentioned we have them. We have them here at Paddock Wood Brewery in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, they're great. Dump roughly five gallons of wort into a fermenter, add yeast of choice, and it's done. The wort comes sealed in plastic bags in a box. No boiling, no mess. Dry hops could be added if desired, but the wort is the same as they ferment for some of their beers. Sometimes they only have one or two spe of a special type available, leftover wort from a tiny test batch they're doing. They advertise those ones on social media, and they typically sell within an hour or so. Anyway, just adding my data point. And Andy, yeah, it's, it was Paddock that I was thinking about in Canada that I knew for certain had pre-made wort kits. Uh, I know there are a couple of others, but I'm still really surprised that nobody's tried to do that here in the U.S. Yeah, really, man. Uh, maybe it goes back to the myth that American homebrewers have that if it's not difficult, it's not homebrewing. That might be. All right. Next one. We have one from the mystery texter who says, hi, guys. It's me, the mystery texter from Canada. Actually, my name is Mike, and I live in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Man, I would love to live in a place called Moose Jaw. Thanks for answering my question on the podcast. I tried adding some calcium chloride to a glass of the grisette, and it seemed to help a little bit, but not as much as I hoped. Actually, I got a bit of an upset stomach afterwards. Not sure if it was related. Uh, I really doubt it because I've done that a lot and it's never bothered me, but I'm me and you're you. Mike says, I'll just drink this as is and rebrew it and make some tweaks to my process. Thanks again for the response and keep up the great work. Yeah, well, the calcium chloride, for those who don't remember, uh, Mike was the one who had the grisette that, I guess, the escarpment labs yeast with Brett kind of took away more of the body than he was thinking it was going to. Right. And we, one of the recommendations that we made was hit it with a little calcium chloride in a glass and see if that actually helps. And it seems like it helped a little bit, but not as much as he wanted. So sorry, Mike, but good luck next yeah, time. Yeah, well, 
that that's always the best option is to rebrew and try and figure out what you did that you didn't like and don't do that again. And then our last piece of Canadian feedback, uh, this time it doesn't look like it comes from Saskatchewan, so we were almost hyper-local there. Uh, John Avarino writes in to say, Hey, guys, I just wanted to say thank you for all the great advice in the Brew Files alt episode. It helped me adjust my alt and bring home a gold in Canada's largest homebrew competition. Right on. Uh, Denny was definitely right about 10... Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Would, would you uh, repeat that, please? Uh, Denny was uh, something about uh, 10.07. <laughs> no, no, no. That was definitely right. Oh, that, that, I, that doesn't look like anything to me. About 10.07, creating a crisp, light-bodied beer. Friends and family who are generally macro fans loved it as much as the craft fans. I really appreciate the style-specific episodes, and I hope you guys keep them up. John, we like doing the style-specific episodes. It just takes a while to write them. Yeah, right. But we'll definitely uh, be shooting out more of those. And let me tell you that uh, 1007 is not just a great yeast for alt. Uh, I use it for IPA. It's really nice for making a real crisp IPA. And uh, if you need like a pseudo lager yeast, it works great for that. Uh, you know, you can run it at lager temperatures if you want. You can run it a little bit above lager temperatures and make uh, a pseudo lager. Great, great all around yeast. Yeah, and I've done that. When I've done shop brews where, you know, you'll have like six people taking wort home and we're like, oh, look, we're going to make a Kolsch and, or we're going to make a lager and realize, no, not everybody's got the ability to lager. So we'll recommend that they use 1007 and kind of make a, a pseudo lager Kolsch thing. Yep. Yep. Well, I don't know about you, but that was a lot of feedback and I need a beer. Yep. I agree, man. Let's get out of here and head for the pub and talk about the beer life. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We are back, and we have made our way over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, no matter where you are. And we're drinking a couple beers. Drew, what do you got there in front of you? I've got one of my old school favorites that I always kind of forget about, and then every time I have it again, I'm like, wait a second, I really like this beer. And it's actually, uh, oddly enough, it's not an IPA, it's not a pale ale, it's not anything, 
of that sort. It is a uh, Deschutes Black Butte Porter. And the thing I love about this beer, I mean, I, like I said, I always forget about it, but it is just so damn tasty and just so damn drinkable. Luscious and, is the way I would describe it. Yeah, it, I mean, it just feels like a warm mocha hug. <laughs> I don't know if it was one of the first American porters, but uh, it was it was uh, an early one, and man, it, it is a great beer that uh, I used to drink all the time, and now I don't think of it often enough. Yeah, and I know that Deschutes, that you, that's still kind of one of their defining beers, but I know that the volume of sales of it has dropped drastically to the point where it doesn't make any sense to call it what we're about to call it here in just a couple moments. And what are you having, <laughs> sir? I am having a Hair of the Dog Adam, uh, batch number 98. Uh, it's a, a 10% beer, and this one is only about six months old. Uh, it ages great. When you first pour it, the alcohol is immediately evident in the aroma, and the first sip seems a little bit hot. Uh, I sip this one over the course of two hours, and it really smooths out and opens up, and you get fruit and coffee and leather notes, uh, darker than I remember in color, and there are very, very slight tannic notes from the dark malts, but it's a beer that is highly enjoyable now and is only going to get better in the future. Uh, I intend to buy a little bit more and put it away for a while. Oh, yeah. I think the oldest one I've ever had, that was a batch four from, like, 98. Wow. And it was damn tasty, and it was, like, 15 years old at the time. So that's a beer that will definitely hold on for some time. Now, yeah, right. And you know what I really like is that the Hair of the Dog website has charts that list the batch numbers of their beers and when they were brewed, so you can really track what you've got. Absolutely. Though, I mean, that's one of the things when we talked to, uh, to Alan about what his intent was. He's not interested in making the stuff that's going to fade. He's interested in making sort of special event type things. Yep. So now, why have we talked about Hair of the Dog's Adam and Deschutes Black Butte Porter? Uh, for a very easy reason. You know, it seems that nowadays you can't go around swinging a pint glass without hitting some sort of special beer day or beer month or beer week, depending upon what city you live in. And February, well, that's no different because thanks to the efforts of Stephen Beaumont, longtime beer writer out of Canada, uh, February is now kind of trending up to become flagship February. And they have a whole website behind this. And the whole point about it is, you know, we're so driven by the new, you know, by the, ooh, I haven't had that before. That, not me, not me. Well, okay. 95% of beer, uh, beer drinkers <laughs> of the craft brew and homebrew persuasion are driven by, you know, that, that sort of desire of like, ooh, I haven't had that before. I think I should have that. And what that's led to is that there are a lot of old school flagships like Adam, like Black Butte, like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, for instance, or Anchor Steam. You know, these things that were sort of foundational or foundational to the brewery that, well, they've fallen out of favor and people have kind of forgotten about them because they're not new and sexy anymore. So the whole idea of Flagship February is, hey, you know, don't forget, go have those flagships, you know, maybe have some of the, uh, maybe have some of the old school stuff, you know, this month as opposed to constantly chasing the next trend. And on their website, they've also included uh, articles from a bunch of beer writers to, you know, basically lauding, you know, old school favorites that they've had. And so, you know, you'll see articles, I think, on, obviously, Santa Nevada Pale Ale, but also, like, Fat Tire. Or, and I even served up 
you know, one of LA's oldest breweries, Eagle Rock, you know, one of their first, one of their first flagships, their manifesto that they still, you know, put out there and promote a Whitbeer. You know, the, there are a lot of these old school flagships that are styles that we don't tend to drink a lot of anymore, or people aren't making a lot of them anymore. So follow the mission of flagship February and go have a beer you may have forgotten about. Eschew the trendy. Go for the tried and true. Yeah, uh, but it, it's it's kind of interesting. And I know there was actually, it, it was interesting because it, it started off just as a, a Twitter idea back in, I think, December. And the next thing you know, uh, Stephen being the organized person that he is, he's managed to get sponsors for it, put up a website, you know, get some writers together to do all this stuff and, you know, really kind of made it a thing. So if you're watching your, your social media and you see breweries talking about hashtag flagship February, that's exactly what this is. Yeah, you know, and anybody who's seen me would not be surprised that uh, I'm not into the trendy. I don't know. You keep wearing your beard like that, it might come back long enough. <laughs> yeah, man, that's why I kept my clothes from the 60s. All right, and then moving on from Flagship February, kind of in the same trend, we, there were also comments that were happening from the now newly retired Charlie Papazian. I, I kind of feel like it took him three years to retire, but... <laughs> He's now retired. Yeah, but he's he's mainly retired. I think he's still a little bit involved in advising and uh, consulting. Yep. But he made comments on his social media. He says, I've been noticing lately the growing number of comments on my various social media platforms. There seems to be a growing irritation by a notable type of craft beer drinker with regard to the proliferation of too many types of IPA at the expense of a reduction of choice that includes other traditional styles of craft beer. I have also listened to many craft brewers I've visited over the years, and more and more are feeling forced, against their measured judgment, to offer several types of IPAs because that is what is hot, what sells, and what their customers want. And that their distributors are asking, slash forcing, their craft brewer suppliers to provide more IPAs at the expense of a more diversified selection. I can't help but have to ask the question, are distributors helping drive the juicy, hazy IPA trend? and in doing so upsetting the balance that has evolved for a more stable and diverse craft beer market in the recent past. Are craft brewers losing the interest of customers that seek a bit more traditional choices? Is that why recently one of the largest craft brewers told me there's never been so much headwind? Perhaps it's a more forceful crosswind creating some zigzag times to the spirit of flavor, diversity, and choice. What do you think, I think that that's a very interesting point that he makes about uh, being driven by distributors. And I, I don't think it's just the uh, hazy IPAs. I think the, the things we're seeing, like the, the pastry stouts and all these uh, unusual ingredient beers are because they get trendy, they sell, the distributors want them, and they ask the breweries for them. Now, the question then becomes, are those customer-driven or are they distributor driven? I, I would argue they're customer driven. I would I would maybe say that they are more distributor driven because the distributors put them out there and people go, "Oh, look at that! I haven't tried that one yet." So it, you know, it, it's like the new and trendy is perhaps taking over from the, uh, like I said, the tried and true and just the nice straight ahead beer. But you know. I don't know that there's really any way to know which is the chicken and which is the egg. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, we're seeing this now. Where I mean, I think a lot of these hazy IPAs, those are driven by customers. I I saw the, there was a, a Facebook discussion the other day that I was part of, where somebody was complaining about uh, uh, that 
that hazy uh, the hazy IPAs were you know really great and that you know West Coast IPAs didn't uh, didn't feature enough hops they weren't bitter enough and and I just had to stop him and and make the comment of like wait what West Coast IPAs have you been drinking that they're not hop forward and featuring a lot of hop bitterness yeah yeah and then I had somebody else say oh well that's because they feature a lot of caramel malt I'm like Oh, people. No, 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 no. So, I mean, I think there's I think there's a lot of, you know, sort of the the new the newer craft customer that's driving some of this, you know, the you know, the people who are going to make me go get a cane and start shaking it at people. But <laughs> I've got one you can borrow. <laughs> I might take you up on that. No, but yeah. I mean, to me, I that's the reason why I uh, I kind of thought this was interesting in juxtaposition to flagship February. Because it is true. I mean, like, I remember not that long ago talking to a couple of craft brewers, and they were talking about how their distributors did not want them to have a ton of SKUs, right? You know, their distributors like, I'm not going to support that many SKUs from you. And now it seems like the distributors are taking the opposite tack, but we're also seeing a lot of beer sit on shelves. So, yeah, a little, a, yeah. a little, a, a little interesting, a little challenging. Yep, really, man. Uh, and I guess only time will tell, huh? Yep. And in the department of a little weird and a little challenging and a little bit of tradition being lost, uh, Widmere, which you guys will remember, you know, had a beautiful brew pub in in, in Portland uh, for years, and then re- went and closed it down and retooled it, turning it into more of a, a sort of a production tap room, right? A little R&D brewery slash tap room to, you know, say, well, you know, running a brew pub's too expensive and, you know, the restaurant side's dragging everything down, so let's respond to trends and do this. And I think that was like in the middle of last year that that happened. Yeah, but that sounds about right because we talked about it. Mm-hmm. Well, they actually went January 22nd and they shuttered the pub. And it's now completely gone. So kind of a big piece of uh, Portland craft brewing history lost, but also just a, a thing that's like, huh, that's really, really, really strange. And I think the only thing that that helped me make some sense of it because it really didn't make any sense to me that you'd take a lot of time and money to really get six months of a run out of something was from Jeff Allward speculating that this may be a run-up to uh, ABI, uh, good old friends at Anheuser-Busch, completing their acquisition of Craft Brewers Alliance, which includes Woodmere in it. And that was simplifying and mainstreaming or streamlining operations in order to, in order to facilitate that buyout. So, uh, that makes as much sense as anything else. It's the only thing that made any any sense to me, other than hey, nobody was going into the into the brew pub. Which, okay, maybe, but still, it seemed like you'd give it a little more time. Well, you know, I don't know. A little more time is a nice concept, but if you're bleeding cash, then there's no more time. This is true, but you would hope that Woodmere would have enough cash to be able to hold on. But whatever. Uh, they're they're a pretty small company, man. Yep. All right, and then. The last one is that there's been a lot of talk about medical marijuana, the rise of medical marijuana, or if you're living where Denny and I are, fully legalized recreational marijuana that you can get delivered to your house in 30 minutes. Or um, grow in your backyard. Or grow in your backyard. That, uh, that that was going to be a threat to the beer and wine industry, and particularly the beer industry, right? Because it's the hangout drug. And there was a recent article in Forbes that was talking about um, a new study that came out that said that despite... You know, kind of conflicting evidence, legal marijuana does not seem to actually be impacting alcohol sales. Well, you know, and, and as an avid consumer of both, uh, I have to say that I, I really, 
have always kind of taken issue with the fact that it would impact beer sales because it just, you know, to me, they're so different and complementary that I, I can't see why people would do one and not the other. Yeah, and they, um, what they talked about was they did uh, tax and shipment data analysis out of Colorado, Washington, and Oregon. And they were very specifically focused on spirit sales and seeing that spirit sales actually increased sales 3.6 to 7.6%. And that beer sales were down 2.3 to 3.6, but that was before you added in the tap rooms and the rise of the tap room in there. And so after you add in the tap rooms, it, beer sales basically stay flat, uh, despite the fact that you have recreational marijuana now. So I just thought that was interesting, kind of another an, another data point in the whole spirits versus beer versus wine versus pot and what are people going to choose with the the downtime that they have i choose them all there you go you would well speaking <laughs> of choosing it all why don't we go be responsible and choose something that you can well brew and keep drinking yeah let's do that uh, we're gonna head over to the brewery and uh talk about a lot of stuff and especially my latest attempt at my american mild which i think is about 99 percent there so stick around. We're going to be coming right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Well, welcome back from that break. Thank you for sticking around with us. We are now in the brewery. That means we've got bubbling airlocks. We've got gleaming stainless steel. We got multi foot. It's time, time to talk about some beer. And Denny, let's talk about this gosh darn American Mile that you've been doing now for. Well, I feel like as long as I've been alive. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. So I, I brewed the eighth version the other day. It was uh, batch number five hundred and thirty-eight, and I I learned some things from doing it, and I finally have it almost to where I want it to be. So uh, well, we'll put up the recipe on the website, but basically it's a five-and-a-half-gallon batch, 1041 OG, 12.9 SRM, about 18 IBUs, and it finished about 1.014 for 3.5% alcohol, which is right where I was aiming it for. 
One thing I have learned through the various iterations of this is that ingredients matter. I've tried it with, uh, you know, some of my favorite malts, uh, like Great Western and RAR, and uh, always ended up with comments like, this tastes like hopped water. So what I've come down to is uh, using malt from Mechagrade, using American Noble hops from uh, Yakima Chief, and uh, these are not like nobles in the sense of European nobles. They're American hops that uh, have had the lupulins separated out of them. So you get uh, the vegetal matter, the tannins from that, and just a little bit of bittering. AKA the flip side of the cryo hop process. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When they uh, freeze the hops with liquid nitrogen, shatter them, they take out the lupulin glands, and that becomes cryo hops. And what's left becomes American nobles. Now, what I have discovered about this beer is that it's just a bit too bitter uh, as it warms up uh, because I didn't account for the tannins in the hops providing uh, a perception of bitterness. I mean, the, the beer only measures at 18 IBUs, but it tastes a little bit out of balance bittering. I had used uh, some uh, uh, American Noble Citra as first word hops, and I believe for the next iteration, I'm going to drop them, knock down the bitterness just a hair, and then I think it's going to be exactly where I want it because I really like the malt profile I got. I used uh, equal amounts of Mechagrade, Lamanta, and Metolius. And then because uh, Mechagrade doesn't make uh, a C60, which I really wanted to get in there, I uh, used some Brees Organic C60 for that. But again, all the ingredients were American. Um, Why yeast 1450 for the the yeast. Uh, I did just a little bit of water adjustment uh, to get the Brunewater Amber Full Profile. Uh, I just used very small amounts of gypsum chloride and lactic acid to uh, to get it all into range. I'm real, real happy with how this turned out. Uh, a lot of you won't be able to get mecha-grade malts, but I would encourage you, if you're going to brew this, to go search out a craft malt of some type, because as much as I like things like Great Western and RAR for other things, this beer really needs a lot of flavor coming from that malt, and uh, that's what you're going to get out of craft malts. Uh, those of you in Colorado, I encourage you to try the root shoot malts. Uh, great, great stuff, and uh, they just won an award as the best-tasting craft malt in the U.S. Yeah, I think so, uh, almost anywhere around the northern U.S., at least now, you're going to be able to find some sort of small maltster like Double Eagle or Valley or, you know, there's a slew. Yeah, and I mean, if you really want to go for the Mecha Grade, you can order it directly from their website. Uh, you may have a heart attack when you see the price, but in in my uh, estimation, it's it's well worth what you pay for it. Yeah. Get some friends together, make a bulk order. Yeah, that's a that's a really good idea. You know, you only need four pounds of their pale malt and four pounds of their uh, Munich type malt for this. So, get two or three people together, split a bag, and you'll have lots of malt for this and other stuff too. But at any rate, I'm, I'm pleased that I finally uh, am almost there. I discovered that one of the things that I really, really liked about this recipe is I don't have to make a yeast starter. At 1040, I just poured in a smack pack 
and it worked great. And then I was able to take that yeast and use it to make a batch of rye IPA. So the lots pow- of advantages to making this beer. Well, I was going to say the power of a session beer. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. You know, and it's like I was getting ready and geared up to make my normal 007 starter and kind of went, wait a minute. I don't have to do this. And it just worked really well. So we'll put the, uh, the recipe and some tips up on the website and you guys can give it a try yourself and see what you think. There we go. And of course, beyond Denny's Brewing Adventures, I think the other one that I saw, we've talked in the past about sort of the, you know, these new dry yeast that are coming up or have been coming up now for a decade and some of the varieties. And well, sour beer has always kind of been a place where they've fallen down. I think largely they stayed away from doing anything with anything souring just because the old school reputation of dried yeast was something that was contaminated with Britannomyces and Lactobacillus and Pediococcus. And so I think the dried yeast producers have been kind of like, we're not doing anything with that. But Lalaman just announced their a brand new product that they're calling Wild Brew Sour Pitch that is a dried Lactobacillus plantarum. So it is a um, just ready to go, kind of do your balloon vices, your gozers, your kettle sours, any of that sort of stuff. And uh, to my mind, it looks pretty rad. They talk about that in the standard work condition testing that they're doing, it can do a fast pH drop that can be completed within two days, and they say typically within 24 hours. Uh, it creates a high amounts of lactic acid versus low acetic production, and the aroma and flavor is citrus and tangy with a hint of fruit, which sounds pretty great. Yeah, it does. It, so- it sounds very interesting. And, uh, you know, we have some friends who work for Lalamon, so maybe we can try and get some of them on the show and uh, tell us a little bit more about this yeast. That sounds great to me. Well, and so now that we've talked bacterial cultures and we've talked brewing adventures, I think it's time for us to go to the lab and talk some hop science and hop history, too. Yeah, man, we have uh, a couple really interesting things to discuss. One about dry hopping, uh, one about hop creep, and we're finally going to hear the story of uh, how Columbus hops and CTZ coincided from uh, one of the guys who was there when it happened. So stick around, and we are going to be right back. This winter welcomes our private collection strains for the first quarter of 2019. Inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix and available exclusively at Y-Yeast. Our 1217 West Coast IPA, 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain, and 2352 Munich Lager II provide balanced characteristics for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Whatever your plans may be for brewing, we hope to inspire new seasonal traditions with crisp, drinkable beers among the rich stouts and barrel-aged behemoths during these colder months. These strains are available January through March at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyyeastlab.com. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival Gold Medal winning Goza. 
Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right. You'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. We are over here in the lab, and we have the Benson Bonus going. We have uh, Drew making uh, Jacob's Ladder sounds. and Yeah, see? It wouldn't be the lab without that. And we're going to be talking hops this time around. And uh, first thing we're going to be talking about is uh, some info from Tom Shellhammer, who may be one of the leading hop scientists in the world right now. He's at Oregon State University, not too far from here. He was speaking recently at a conference in Ohio and uh, had some really interesting points about dry hopping that some reinforce and some kind of contradict what homebrewers normally do, huh? Yeah, and so uh, some of these we've talked about before. So, But the major points of his uh, discussion, and by the way, the summary of this article comes from actually uh, Pat's uh, Pints, uh, who are in Ohio, and they wrote this up, so it was great. But the major points that were raised by Tom in this talk and the things that he's talked about before According to the studies that he's done, if you dry hop at more than, say, four grams per liter, which works out to about 2.8 ounces per five-gallon batch, the dry hopping tends to favor herbal notes. And so the citrus notes, you know, which is what a lot of people are trying to go for, or tropical fruit notes, you know, those tend to max out at about the 2.8 ounce per five-gallon mark. And going over, that tends to make you more herbal and more tea-like. You know, you get more of the vegetal flavors. Um, and according to his studies, going over eight grams per liter doesn't add any more flavor impact to the beer. So when you look at some of these recipes that are out there where people are talking about, oh, I used a pound of dry hops in my five-gallon batch, what Shellhammer's uh, you know, studies seem to indicate is that's a little bit wasteful. And you're not really and not only wasteful, but counterproductive to what you're probably trying to go for also. Right. And so the comparison that was raised is if you look at uh, Plenty of the Elder, Plenty of the Elder is rumored to use roughly about 2.5 ounces of dry hops per five gallons. So under that 2.8 magic mark. So yeah, that makes right. kind of, some kind of sense. Uh, we've talked about uh, humulones before, you know, those bitter compounds that are kind of uh, from degradation and that come in via uh, dry hopping. And they do contribute to uh, bitterness, even though they are only slightly bitter. And we've talked about that. So it's good to see that get reinforced. And then the last one is something else that we've also talked about, hop creep. But I thought this was really, really cool that they they did the study with Coors Banquet beer. So they took finished, very, very, you know, steady, you know, straightforward beer that's going to be the same no matter what. Uh, so Coors Banquet. And they did four different trials. So they took four different samples of Coors Banquet. And to one sample run, they did only hops. They did another that was just a control, no change. They did the other with just yeast. And then they did one with hops and yeast. And took a look at what happened to the gravity. So no big surprise, the control showed no change. Right? 
hops alone actually increased the gravity because of a little bit of sugar that's present in the hops. I thought that was funny. Yeast showed a small decrease in gravity, but not anything major. Adding both hops and yeast caused a massive drop in the final gravity, roughly about 1.5 degrees Plato or 6 degrees of specific gravity. And that's big in a packaged beer that's supposed to be stable. Yeah, really, man. That is a huge, huge change. So basically what's happening is that the hops provided a little bit of extra sugar and the yeast ate it up, and that's what happened. Well, but also don't forget the hops also provide some enzymes. So oh, that's true. And so, but obviously, um, it wasn't just the sugar in the hops that was fermenting, right? It's, it's the no. beer that was supposed to be fermented out already. Yeah, because the, the hop alone addition, the increase that they saw in, in the gravity was, you know, a very, very small degrees Plato, like, you know, 0.2. And hops and yeast together showed a 1.5 degree Plato drop, which is startling. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So what is Startling this? is putting it mildly. Yeah. So what does this mean for, you and I, well, you and I are terrible about removing yeast from our beer. Even when we think we've got the beer completely clear, there's still plenty of yeast in there. And that means if you're going on big dry hopping runs, expect to see a gravity drop. And I've, I'm fairly certain now that now that I've been reading about this stuff, I'm fairly certain I've seen this and just not realized it. Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't know if if I've ever really measured the gravity of my beer after dry hopping. One question I have about this is what amount of hops did they use compared to the, the beer and the yeast? You know, is it, is it under the 2.8 ounces per five gallons that uh, Tom has recommended for dry hopping? Did they have to go way over that to get this to happen? Uh, I haven't seen any info about that yet. Have you? Yeah, uh, they said that they refermented the commercial lager beer, uh, exposing it to 10 grams per liter, so above the 2.8 by a long shot. But right, so so it's it could be something that we'll never see because we don't use that much dry hops. Yeah, I mean it's possible, but again, I mean I think we're seeing you know particularly if we're in this world of hazy IPAs where everybody's jamming. You know, a whole kettle's worth hops in there. We might, they're definitely going to see some of that. Would make some sense with some of the exploding can stories we've had. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to see this done at the more reasonable level, but I, I suspect they did that at that level just to be able to see the, the drop, you know, for sure. Cause they, they saw a pretty significant drop in the Play-Doh, like over one degree Play-Doh in about a week. So it's a slower process, but it's it's definitely there. I think that this is going to take an email to Tom to say, you know, what's what is the lowest amount of hops that you've ever seen cause this? Mm-hmm. Because again, at ten grams per liter, that's four times, like say what Pliny is, and I don't even the craziest home brewers I know I don't think use that much. Mm, you you know some different home brewers than I do. Um, but uh, the other side effect that I also, that was also noted in here was that when this process happened, you know, thanks to the, you know, inability of the yeast to be able to get through to the cleanup cycle, uh, they saw an increase of a diacetyl or diacetyl from 25 parts per billion to 200 parts per billion. So that's another side effect as well. And I've seen yeah, some of that really. in some hazy IPAs as well. So there you go. Interesting stuff. Yeah, really. 
uh, I guess it's time for a little hop history now, huh? Yep, I think I think we go from hop science, and uh, keep in mind, a lot of this stuff has been previously known, but it's now just being publicized again because we've changed our hopping behaviors. <laughs> yeah, really. So, uh, on to some hop history. Uh, you guys have all heard me talk many times about uh, Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief. It's a wonderful experience, and uh, we hope to get involved uh, this year with it and uh, do something real special with them. But last year when I was there, one of the owners and longtime hop growers there, Steve Carpenter, uh, got into the story of Columbus and CTZ hops and uh, how they came to be and uh, how one was derived from the other. And uh, since Steve was one of the guys who was there at the beginning, it was a fascinating story. So uh, I recorded it, and, uh, you know, the recording is not great. It's uh, kind of like off the PA, so there's a little bit of uh, echo and reverb in the room. But it's it's you can definitely understand what's going on. And it, it's a really great story from the mouth of the guy who was there and went through it all. So uh, we've got about a six-minute recording here of Steve explaining uh, how they started with Columbus and then ended up with CTZ. So... Sit back, relax, and take a listen. CTZ, this morning I talked a little bit about partnering up with Chuck Zimmerman. And uh, uh, so we, we had uh, Columbus was left with Hop Union USA in the breeding program that Chuck was part of when he worked for CUSA. It was also one of the duplicates that he got as a result of his severance agreement. So we planted it. He didn't tell us anything about the variety. He just said, plant these, I think they have promise, and I'll let you make the decision on whether to commercialize them or not. So one of them, um, we planted them A, B, C, D, E, F, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. didn't identify it. And the one that lined up with F and 10 turned out to be a very high-yielding potential variety that we named Tomahawk, completely independent from Hop Union USA. So they started commercializing a variety called Columbus. We started in parallel, without any knowledge of that, propagating Tomahawk. About three years later, Hop Union tried to patent Columbus. And uh, so they filed for a patent. We looked into applying for a patent for Tomahawk, but discovered through our patent attorney that we had too many acres commercialized of the variety to really apply for a valid plant patent. So our, their advice is keep it a trade secret, retain ownership of the roots, you'll be fine. So we trademarked the name Tomahawk but did not file for a patent. A Hop Union USA did apply for a patent, and in the patent application, they named uh, Greg Lewis, who was a new CEO of Hop Union, as the inventor. Chuck took exception to that because he's the one that made the original cross on that. And so originally we tried to work together. I told you this is gonna take a while. <laughs> Originally, we tried to work together to uh, uh, 
you know, protect the intellectual property rights, we still felt that we had a huge hurdle to get over because we already by this time had a couple hundred acres in production. And uh, we didn't think the patent was gonna be, patent was gonna be valid. We tried to work together to figure it out. Long story short, we ended up in several lawsuits and uh, we settled the CT lawsuit with Hop Union by forming an entity called HUSA Says. HUSA and then C-E-Z, Chuck Edward Zimmerman. <laughs> and we own part of that company. Um, they really wanted to commercially patent the variety. So we cut a deal with them. You go ahead and patent it. We want to grow whatever we want. We will pay a royalty into this company and then get refunded 100% back. So it was no net cost to us. Uh, they went out to Barth Hawes at the time and uh, licensed them to grow it and uh, got a royalty for a year or two, uh, but then found out that we were getting paid a royalty and getting a full refund. They didn't like that. So then Husa uh, and Barth Hawes got in a lawsuit. <laughs> And uh, we kind of stayed out of that one until we found out that Haas had bought Lupofresh, and Lupofresh had several hundred acres of roots that they were instructed, one of the fellows on the ranch was instructed to go out with a bucket and a flashlight and a shovel in the middle of the night and steal some of our roots. <laughs> so, we sued Lupofresh. Lupofresh was bought by Barth Haas. Barth Haas uh, ended up inheriting that lawsuit. The HUSA and the Barth uh, uh, suit was settled by Barth Haas buying HUSA, and there was also a, a uh, downstream uh, product patent suit that was, we were suing everybody back then. It was, it was a wonderful time to be part of the hop industry, especially if you were an attorney here in the area. Uh, so we ended up, because Barth Haas inherited the suit from Lupofresh for stealing the roots, we ended up settling that suit. And when the dust settled, CTZ, and the Zeus part of that was roots that Steiner obtained somehow, some way. That's still a mystery how they obtained them. Uh, but the Houston Says Group settled that lawsuit with them. And when the dust had all settled, CTZ became a public variety. It's known as Columbus, Tomahawk, and Zeus, or CTZ for short. And as a result of us settling our lawsuit with Barth Haas, a breeding company was formed. So it was kind of a shotgun marriage. Uh, still exists to this point. We don't necessarily like each other in the marketplace, but we do cooperate uh, in developing uh, wonderful new hop varieties that all of you use folks can use in your beer. So, everybody still awake? So, uh, a little bit of skullduggery involved there, and uh, a lot of lawyers. Uh, I don't envy anybody involved, but uh, there, there's the case, and, uh, you know, for those of you who think that maybe there is a difference between Columbus and CTZ, proof positive that there's not. Yeah, I just like, you know, ninja stealth spy missions that get involved in this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really kind of what it was. 
Yeah, well, all right, so that, I think, is enough uh, hopping time stuff. I think it's time to go lounge. Yeah, we're going to head over to the lounge, and we're going to be talking about uh, our own brewing goals this year, and uh, we're going to be hearing from some people who wrote in to tell us about their brewing experiences from last year. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome to the lounge. It's time to talk about uh, our resolutions for brewing this year. Well, not so much resolutions as as hopes and aspirations. And uh, Drew says that they're micro resolutions that we should be able to keep instead of the big lofty goals. And I think that there's more chance of this than uh, some of the bigger stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm tired of failing. So no <laughs> no promising that I'm going to do all the saison yeast that remain this year because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right so here here are mine and i think we should go back and forth on this uh my very first one is uh i'm going to learn no chill brewing already got the jerry can lined up i'm already ready to 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 give this thing a try despite the fact that i've got fun stuff to keep my temperatures under control and chill down uh, i still live in california where water is still a concern even though we've almost been washed out to sea a couple times this year so no chill brewing is uh, one of the things I'm promising myself I'm going to do at least once. Cool. Good luck. <laughs> and you, Denny? Um, my first one is brew more for fun and less for testing. I've kind of gotten to the point where uh, home brewing has almost become a job. And uh, I've talked about it before. I really hate that. So I'm going to try and do more stuff like I just did, where I brewed my uh, American Mild, I brewed my Rye IPA, I wasn't testing ingredients, I wasn't testing equipment, I was just trying to make some good beer. And you know what? I just love those two brew sessions. Uh, even though uh, I had some issues on one of them, brewing, brewing for fun is where I'm at for this year. There we go. And I'm going to also follow up my learning no-chill uh, brewing I'm going to try and do the hard thing and try not to decant my shaken, not stirred starters. Good on you. <laughs> that's going to be hard. <laughs> and and hide your stir plate so you can't use that. Oh, no, that's down in a cubby hole somewhere. I haven't seen it. Okay, good, good. Uh, I'm going to try more of the Quika strains, Quickie strains. 
K-V-E-I-K strains. I'm told that it's pronounced like uh, Quika, something like that. I don't know if that's correct. If somebody knows, please send us a little audio file so uh, we can get clued in. Yeah, just record but, it on your phone. Otherwise, we're hopeless. <laughs> yeah, right. But those sound those sound real, real interesting to me. When I uh, first started hearing about them, I thought, well, those are like just for sour beers, and I'm not really into those all that much. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. So I think it's time to find out for myself and start playing with some of those, despite yeah, I, the fact that I said I was going to be brewing more for fun and less for testing. Yeah, I think I think I definitely want to play with those, particularly as we get closer to summer, because I mean, these things are supposed to be able to do incredibly hot temperatures. And boy, do I have a setup designed for it. My garage gets to 110, 120. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, and I'm just curious to see if something can uh, work in really hot temperatures and still produce a clean beer. And that's what everyone says these do. So I think it's time for us to jump on the bandwagon with all those other people and check it out. There we go. And my, another one of my micro resolutions, because I know I'm going to succeed at this one because it's already planned is I'm going to host a public brew day here at my house. Casa Verde will see a, uh, a public brew day where I'm going to have you know 10 to 20 people here helping me brew. And we're going to try and do the, some of the same things that we've done in the past, which is basically brew all the beers on all the systems. Because why not? Wow. That, <laughs> that could be uh, really astounding, man. I want to see pictures. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm going to uh, brew my American mild recipe a bunch more of times to make sure that I've got it dialed in. Uh, that's my style. Brew a lot of test batches, uh, tweaking one little thing at a time. And once you think you've got it, brew it exactly like that three or four times just to make sure that it's going to be repeatable and that it really is what you think it is. And my final resolution is going to be I'm going to make it into the brewery every week. I don't care if it's just opening up the door and walking over the fridge and getting a beer. I'm going to be in the brewery every week. You know, man, I've been kind of doing that too, going out on a daily basis and just doing a little puttering around and not really brewing, but cleaning, rearranging things. And it does feel good, doesn't it? It does. It's just kind of nice to have that space and, you know, use it as a little, I don't know, meditative zone or something. <laughs> I don't know about that. It just it keeps me busy and off of Facebook. Well, <laughs> uh, I'm already busy enough. Yeah, yeah, right. And you know, despite the fact that I said that I was going to cut back on experimenting, one thing I really want to start playing with is blending the cryo hops and American nobles in various amounts, and kind of like you know making my own hops. You know, I can. With those two, I can control the ratio of vegetation to lupulin, and I really want to play around and kind of see what I can come up with by doing that. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I hope so. And so you guys remember we started talking about, you know, our best brewing experience and best drinking experience uh, towards the end of last year, and we asked people to send us in some stuff some people have, and you know, we want to give you a chance uh, to get us some more of this information, but we figured... This is a little too long to go without talking about some of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to read you one of the ones that came in. And this one came in from Sam Howard, uh, both from Hawaii and Germany. So a little, a little bit of a distance there. And Sam writes in and says, I had a spectacular year of beer that I'm excited to share with you. My year began in Hawaii, where I lived on the Big Island. This is where I had my best brewing experience of the year. I had a friend that lives off the grid about a three-mile hike from the nearest paved road. 
we decided to brew a beer that would showcase the land he lived on and wanted to make it in the most natural way possible. The idea was to brew a German Weizen with a Hawaiian twist. His home had no electricity, no running water, and no neighbors. We began the brew by collecting water from the spring next to the house. We collected some herbs and teas from his garden to use as well. After mashing in the usual way in my homemade igloo cooler mash tun, we transferred the wort to a pot and boiled it over a fire we built with wood from the surrounding area. We made a separate tea with the items we'd collected from his garden that consisted of mamaki, lemongrass, and tulsi, and added this to the final 10 minutes of boiling. Finally, to chill the wort, we placed the lid over the pot and secured it in the river next to the house. The cool water flowing past the pot took about an hour to finally reach a pitching temperature. Several weeks later, after fermentation and bottle conditioning, our creation was ready to enjoy. We thought it would be best enjoyed in the valley we brewed in, so we called our friends and said to meet us on the beach. We brought all five gallons to the front of the valley, used a surfboard to bring it across the river with water up to our chests, and spent the rest of the day enjoying and ultimately finishing the beer with some of our closest friends. While the character from the tea we used was more subtle than we intended, it was without a doubt the most satisfying beer I had ever consumed. Sam, I hate you. <laughs> Seriously, that just sounds rad. Yeah, it really does, man. It sounds like a lot of effort, but it sounds like a really, really fun and rewarding experience. Yeah, I, I have friends in the homebrew club who will go every year and they'll collect five gallons of Sierra snow melt from up in the mountains and hike it back down. I always thought that was crazy. This is nuttier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sam also told us about his best beer drinking experience, and he says, Fast forward a few months. I had the opportunity to make a six-month apprenticeship in a traditional brewery smack dab in the middle of Bavaria. While living and working there, a whole new world of beer was suddenly accessible to me. You know, I bet that was a lot different than brewing in Hawaii. Mm. I used this opportunity to visit several towns and cities and drink styles of beer in their native settings. The most spectacular was hopping a train for the day to visit Bamberg. There I spent my time wandering the beautiful streets and stopping into any brewery that caught my attention, and of course drinking a fair share of Rauch beer. There is something truly remarkable about enjoying a beer style in the city in which it was created. Well, my apprenticeship eventually came to an end. However, I was fortunate enough to make many connections in that time. As the year also came to an end, I found myself in a new and wonderful position. I am delighted to tell you that I was hired as the head brewer of a small brewery in Berlin. I want to extend an invitation to Denny, Drew, and the listeners of the Experimental Brewing Podcast to join me at the brewery, Brauhaus Neulich, located in Berlin, Germany. Wow, Sam, that is that is really, really cool. Congratulations on the gig. Uh, I hope it turns into everything that you were dreaming of. Uh, it, it sounds like a great experience. Yeah, remember what I just said about I hate Sam? <laughs> now you hate him even more? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. just rad. That's awesome. Uh, that I mean, that's that is just a really great experience and a really great way to go, and it also shows the power of beer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It really excites me when he talks about uh, getting to try beers uh, in situ, you know, where they where they come from, because in a month or so, I am heading for Belgium and the Netherlands, and uh, I am really, really looking forward to trying some there. We're, we'll be going to the uh, Zythos Festival, which I am told is the largest beer festival in Belgium. And man, Sam, you have me really, really excited now just to be where the beer comes from. 
Yeah, that, that is going to be pretty great. If you have uh, tips for Denny of where he should go in Belgium, let him know. Denny at experimentalbrew.com. If you have brewing experiences that you want us to read and beer drinking experiences that you want to share with the audience, send us an email, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. You can even text us there, although make sure to give us your name. Uh, and we will be reading more of these in short order. But I think it's time for us to go do some questions. I agree. So we're going to take a break here to uh, unparch our throats. And when we come back, it's going to be time for Q&A, a quick tip, and something other. Please stick around. We're back, and it's time for the big wrap-up. We're going to start with some questions that we've gotten, and Drew's going to read the first one. First question comes from Dave Buckner in Utah, who says, I've been brewing almost five years, about 35 all-grain batches to date. I've recently been thinking about entering two of my beers into competition. One of my beers, an American Amber, is fully my recipe. The other, a Northeastern IPA, I know, not your favorite style, is based on a recipe that I got online. I've changed it by adjusting the malt bill, changing the type, amount, and schedule of the hops, and a different strain of yeast. How much of should one change a recipe to actually be able to call it my own? My other question is about style. I live near Salt Lake City, and we generally have one competition locally. Last year, the competition, the Beehive Brewhoff, used the BJCP 2015 style guideline, and New England IPA did not have a category until last year. How do I list a New England IPA using the 2015 guidelines? Denny? Okay, we're going to start with the second question first, because that's the easy one. Uh, I would say to enter it as 21B, a specialty IPA, but actually I would suggest you contact the BJCP either through their Facebook page or the forum on their website and ask them, because they know a whole heck of a lot better than I do. Now for the hard part. Uh, I would say that you changed enough of that recipe to call it yours. You change the malt bill, you change the type, amount, and schedule of hops, and you change the yeast. I would say that uh, you have pretty much changed that recipe to make it yours. Uh, here's a little deep, dark secret. My rye IPA actually started as an IPA recipe from Brew Your Own magazine many, many years ago. And I started looking at it and changing one thing and changing another thing. And there's really not much of that original recipe left in my rye IPA anymore. And it's my recipe. To me, if you even change one thing, that's enough to make it a different recipe and make it yours. Uh, that's one reason why I encourage people to brew the recipes just as they're written before they start changing anything. That's one reason I encourage people to try brewing a recipe exactly as it is before you start changing things, because if you don't brew it like that, how do you know what it tastes like, and how do you know what to change? Um, so I would say if you change anything in a recipe, it becomes your recipe, no matter what you change. Um, I don't know. I guess the other thing that comes to my mind is, why does it really matter, but you know, that's, that's my philosophy. Well, it certainly doesn't matter for entering into a competition, right? You know, they're not going to ding you for it not being your own recipe. The judges don't know. 
Uh, the other thing is I agree, you know, once you start changing things, it becomes your own recipe. And uh, frankly, Dave, the way you describe the changes that you made to the recipe, it becomes the ship of Theseus or, you know, the, your grandfather's axe, right? Yeah. Right. Oh, it's my grandfather's axe. We've had to replace the handle five times and the head twice, but that's my grandfather's axe. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, especially IPA. And yeah, it's your own recipe. The next question is for Drew, and it comes from Kevin McAvoy from Boulder. Kevin says, I live in Boulder, and I got a local government mailing list for a weekly water report. I plugged the info into Bruin Water, even though the info on the report didn't exactly match the inputs on the spreadsheet, the best I could understand and started making some adjustments in my mash. I've had pretty mixed results, some tasty batches and a few that have come out more tart than I've expected. I never had any issues like this back in my pre-water adjusting days, so I wonder, should I go back to just using straight tap water with Camden for chlorine? Do I need to send my water in for a more complete, easy-to-understand analysis? Any ideas what I might be doing wrong, other than just not really knowing exactly what I'm doing? Yeah, that can be an issue. Also, last summer, I did a small internship at a local brew pub. I noticed that they went with the same water adjustments for a given brew every time and didn't reanalyze their water source ever. Is this standard? I've heard so many times that water makeup can change often, so how do smaller breweries with no labs approach this issue? Okay, to start with the government report versus something more localized, yeah, your government report is going to be an aggregate across the year and across all the water sources feeding into your municipal water district. So as you can imagine with L.A., that's eh, a lot of change. Um, if you're a smaller town and you're drawing from a well or something like that, you're fine. But I would definitely go for a more localized report. Go spend the money on a Ward's Lab report. We've talked about that. Go back to the Brew Files episode that I did with Martin. Uh, he walks you through brewing water. He also walks you through how to read a Ward Labs report and exactly where it goes in that spreadsheet. So that would be my suggestion. Don't depend upon your governmental report if you're really trying to dial things in. It's going to be good enough to get you into the general ballpark, but there's a lot of things that's going to change, or there are going to be a lot of things that could possibly change between the area where the water is sampled for your water report versus what actually happens by the time it comes out of the pipes in your house. You know, I, I'm lucky in that uh, I have a well, and the water from my well is remarkably consistent. I, I get it tested every few years, and it's pretty much always exactly the same. So that's an issue that I don't have to deal with. But yeah, like Drew said, unless you know exactly what's in your water to plug it into brewing water, then you're not going to be getting really good results. So... Either get a local water report or use uh, distilled water and build from there. Yeah, and then to your second question about the local brew pub, uh, let's face it, most local brew pubs aren't going to be that precise about this sort of stuff. I've seen this even with bigger chain brew pubs too, and actually I've seen this with some bigger packaging breweries. Uh, most of the time, yeah, people will just learn what their water's supposed to be, and they'll make the exact same adjustments again and again and again. If you're lucky, they'll make different adjustments based on you know, the, the recipe that they're going to brew. But yeah, the number of brew pubs I've walked into where it's like, okay, look, we're filling up the HLT for the next day. And uh, here we go. We're going to add 700 milliliters of lactic acid to the, to the HLT. And that's going to be our water adjustment for tomorrow. And that was it. And a couple cups of gypsum. Right. Yeah. A lot of places it's just, okay, that's our standard water adjustment and let's go. And there are very few people, you know, at the smaller level who are doing lots of water analysis, the only one I can think of off the top of my head was Colin Kaminsky when he was at Downtown Joe's in, in Napa who did a water test every brew. 
but that might be overkill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you're saying, for smaller places, uh, probably they're not going to be doing much. I know, though, that Sierra Nevada tests their water pretty much continuously, but they're not exactly a small outfit. No. And so, really, a lot of places, you just get close enough, and then you adjust for your palate. But yeah, go listen to the Brew Files episode with Martin, Water, Water Everywhere, and that will give you a lot of tips, tricks, and secrets to deal with brewing water and to get a better understanding of exactly what you're doing to your water when you're adding that stuff. All right, and our last question comes from Corbett French via email. Last summer, I brewed a great beer. I got the recipe from somewhere on the interwebs that I can't remember now and was excited to brew it because it said it was an alt ale. After listening to your podcast about alt ales, I quickly realized that I did not brew an alt ale at all. The color was too light, and it had what I perceived too low of a bitterness that, than what would fit the description from the podcast. Since I didn't make an alt ale, can you tell me what did I make? I plan to make it again this year. Several friends liked it and have requested it to come back. I was thinking of maybe using 3470 instead of White Labs 36 this time, but I'm not sure. Note, I was going to over the recipe just now and noticed that it calls for Durst Munich malt. Is this different from regular Munich malt? And the recipe that it gives is 7 pounds of uh, German Munich malt, 3.5 pounds of Vienna, a half pound of melanoidin, 4 alpha acid units of Holotower at 60, and 3 alpha acid units of Tetanang at 60, a half an ounce of Zotz at 15, and a half ounce of Tetanang at 15. So what do you think, Denny? Not an alt? What do you make? Well, it could be kind of like an American-style alt, because most of the German alts I'm familiar with uh, don't use a, a heavy percentage of Munich malt. Um, somebody will write in and tell me I'm wrong about that. I would say that that recipe looks as close to an Oktoberfest, uh, or maybe even closer, than it does an alt, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're going to go with a lager yeast. Uh, if you want to make it more alt-like, I would certainly suggest going for 1007, like we uh, talked about earlier. But, um, you know, if, if you use dark Munich as opposed to light Munich, that would uh, darken it up some. But I would say that, you know, that, that grain bill and hop uh, schedule could make a pretty decent Oktoberfest. Uh, now, Durst Munich malt, that is just one maltster's variety of Munich malt. Uh, you know, there's Durst, there's Best, there's Weyermann. There are a number of German Munich malts out there. Uh, they're all going to have a little bit different character based on what their maltsters decide the Munich malt should taste like. But it's not going to make a huge world of difference. Uh, so, you know, if, if you can't get Durst, don't go out of your way trying to get it. Something like, like Best or Wireman or, you know, any number of other Munich malts will work fine for you. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is kind of close to a, either an Oktoberfest or a Vienna lager. Um, uh, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever used Durst, so I can't actually speak to a difference to it. Uh, you know, I've, I've used Durst and, uh, before I got into best, that was what I was using a lot. And it's, it's really good. Uh, but I would be hard pressed to tell a difference between a beer made with Durst and one made with best. And what do you think about Mr. French's uh, plan to, or possible plan to move to using uh 3470 as opposed to 36? Yeah. I think that it's going to give you a much crisper beer. I have never been a, a big fan of 36 for my taste. It's always a bit round and can maybe give the beer a flabbiness. Uh, there's, there's some real uh, undefined terms for you. 
Uh, but I would definitely say try it with 3470, see if it'll crisp it up a bit and maybe be a bit more to your taste. Well, there you go. There's our questions for today. So now I think it's time we get the good people out of here and on with their day with a quick tip and something other. So, Denny, what's your quick tip? My quick tip is about HBUs, homebrew bitterness units. The letter that we just read from uh, Corbett, he mentioned uh, measuring the hops in AAUs, alpha acid units, which is pretty much the same as HBUs. And basically, it's a great way to uh, substitute one hop for another and know how much to use. Basically, all you have to do is multiply the ounces of hops times the alpha acid content, and that's your homebrew bittering units. If you have an ounce of hops with a 5% alpha acid rating, then you have five homebrew bittering units. If you want to substitute that with a hop that is 10% alpha acid, then, duh, you uh, use half an ounce because half of 10 is five. Wow, my math is astounding, huh? So remember that it's a really good way to uh, just estimate the number of hops. And uh, in the recipe we saw from Corbett, the hop amounts were in alpha acid units. So you don't really need to worry about weight or what the exact alpha is in terms of specifying it in the recipe, because you can just go out and get that hop variety in whatever alpha acid you can find and then use the uh, the formula to determine the right amount to use. Yeah, it's it's not going to be super precise in terms of like landing you on exactly everything exactly the same, but it's a damn handy uh, rule of thumb. Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind is that it's mainly useful for uh, earlier additions, for bittering and stuff like that. When you get into flavor and aroma hops, you want to pretty much just keep those to the weight that the recipe specifies because you don't really care about alpha acid in those. Well, and you saw with Corbett's recipe, they specified, yeah, the bittering hops, the two 60-minute additions were in AAUs. And the 15s were in exact weight. Half ounce. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's that's the way you use the HBUs. Use it to uh, to substitute bittering hops for flavor and aroma hops. Just go by the same weight. Yep. All right. Well, there's your quick tip. And then, of course, since not everything in life is about beer, sometimes it's about other things. And a lot of times with me, it's about books. Here we go with something other than beer. And no huge surprise, uh, when I was a kid... I, uh, well, when I got bored, I would read and I read a lot and sometimes I would get bored enough that the only thing that sounded interesting to me to read was the dictionary. <laughs> yeah, I was that kid. I loved reading the dictionary. I, you know, I can relate to this. Yeah. So a couple of years back, Miriam Webster, the venerable dictionary company of the U.S., they started releasing videos online uh, called Ask the Editor, where different lexicographers from the the company would go and answer you know fairly interesting questions because that was one of their jobs was to always answer people's questions that came in. And one of the one of their lexicographers who became sort of a viral sensation for a whole piece that she did on whether the plural of octopus was octopuses, octopi, or octopode. Um, was Corey Stamper and Corey Stamper worked for Miriam Webster for uh, nearly 20 years as a lexicographer and just recently left because she also just published her first book called word by word. And it's a really cool deep dive 
into how a dictionary gets made and also what the purpose of a dictionary is. And so one of the big things that Miriam Webster is always stressing, and she stresses a lot in this book, is they get a lot of feedback from people going, you're destroying the English language because you used, you included this definition of this word or you included this word in there. And, you know, the Miriam Webster folks say that, you know, there's a difference, there's a split between whether or not the purpose of a dictionary is to be prescriptive, you know, as in outlining what is correct in language, or descriptive in terms of outlining what is actual usage in language. And Merriam-Webster falls on the descriptive side. And so they will take, and they do a lot of reading, a lot of research to find different uses of words and how they're actually being used, what the senses are, what the, you know, how it fits into the language. And that's what actually ends up in the dictionary. And it's just, it's a really cool and interesting read to go through. And she basically breaks each of the chapters down by taking a particular word and using it as an example of the topic that she's tackling in that particular chapter that the lexographers and dictionary writers do. I mean, it's actually amazing just how hard it is to define a word. You know, as a former English major, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and you can find Corey Stamper's writings. She has a blog. She's writing now for, like, I think the New York Times. She's writing for a lot of different places, which is why she ended up leaving Merriam-Webster. But the book is called Word by Word by Corey Stamper, and her name is Corey, K-O-R-Y, Stamper. And absolutely fun read. And she also swears in the book, which is kind of funny from somebody writing a dictionary. You're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Those words are in the dictionary. Oh, I know. But still, it's just kind of it, it, she does a lot to sort of bust through what you think the prim and proper nature of everything is supposed to be. Yeah, so, cool. Really great book. Word by word by Corey Stamper. Go read it. I enjoyed it. Great, man. That sounds pretty cool. I think it's time to let these people get on with their day, huh? Go forth. Let's do the do. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew is on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I hang out on many, many different beer forums, including the AHA discussion forum. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL or send a text message. Remember to include your name so we don't have any more mystery texters. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.